you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week, dealing more with the whole demonic thing. Father, we praise you for this time, for your word. We give you thanks, great thanks, for this privilege of opening it up, coming before you and looking to you to feed us, minister to us, help us to understand where we're, where we're at, our own souls, our own lives. Allow us to be reflective, allow us to look upon you and gaze upon your word, and may it search us deeply, confirming and strengthening and checking and warning and correcting. Have your way, O Lord, with us, for we ask it in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In war, wartime, it isn't uncommon for an enemy to invade a particular area, chase the enemy out, the enemy recedes backwards, they're driven out, and then they proceed to go forward and press on the enemy. And when, but if they do not occupy an area, if they do not take over that area, if they do not establish a government in that area, what happens is it gives opportunity for the enemy to circle back around and reestablish its position in that area. In, in war, depending how large it is, if, it's just, if, if the war is in, desirous to take that particular city or area, that could be fine. But a lot of times, if it's not occupied and established, it, it creates a lot of instability. It creates situations where the enemy can be reestablished in that area. So it's always important not just to remove the enemy, but to establish and occupy a presence there in order to reestablish the new government, new system, how things are going to work. This idea of chasing out an enemy and the importance of reestablishing occupancy and stability is exactly the kind of idea and concept we're introduced to here in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, 24 through 26, Jesus describes what happens when, a demon, when demons are removed from a person, but new ownership does not occupy the house. And instead of using a military analogy, he uses the analogy of a house. And here, often, you come to a passage like this, and you're thinking, wow, this one's interesting. What is this talking about? What does this mean? Well, here's how it reads, beginning at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it will find, if it finds the house swept and put in order, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now this passage reveals to us not only how important it is to have demons removed, but to make sure ownership is transferred and Jesus occupies. Just leaving the house open is a bad deal, Jesus says. It's not good at all. And in order for us to understand what exactly is going on here and how this applies to our life, I want us to break this down step by step and look at it piece by piece and figure this out. If you, first of all, if you look at verse 24, we see that the demons are removed. The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Now, what, this is a state 
that Jesus and his disciples were bringing about quite often. Demons occupied, and what was Jesus doing? What was one of the main things that Jesus and his disciples did when they came into an area? They would cast out demons. Demons would be removed. They were casting out demons all over the place, one of the primary tasks everywhere they went. No demon was safe when Jesus and his disciples showed up. The kingdom of God was being established in their presence. The military was moving forward. The enemy was being cast out. The strong man who had a stronghold over humanity for several thousand years was for the first time being confronted in a powerful way and being removed, being thrown out because there's a new king in town. Some dramatic changes were taking place. However, just because demons are being cast out doesn't necessarily mean that the people were also believing in Jesus and giving ownership over to him. Many people were still trying to figure out and decide who he was. Who is this Jesus? Jesus would even ask, who do the people say that I am? Well, some said he was a prophet. Some said he was Elijah. Some said he was John the Baptist even, after John the Baptist was killed, that he was resurrected in some form. Yet Jesus didn't do interviews and make sure everyone was explicitly a faithful follower of him before he would exercise these demons. He would cast them out from anyone and everyone who came to him. He didn't pre-qualify. Some simply came because they heard he was setting people free and he's healing them of their diseases. And they came to him and he, and he would heal them. He would cast out demons. In the process, some came and they found out, in the process, they found out that they had a demon. I can almost guarantee you, as we looked at last week, the person, the guy with the, who was mute, he didn't come because he wanted a demon cast out. He came because he wanted to speak. And in the process, Jesus casts out a demon, as we looked at. The guy was probably freaked out, like, whoa, I had a demon? I thought I had a voice problem. So he casts out this demon, and, and then the, the guy speaks. So he's even shocked that this, I almost guarantee that he's shocked that there was a demon possession involved in this. You know, in our day, there are no doubt many clearly many who've experienced the power and blessing of Jesus. But they themselves do not know Jesus. The demons, in some regards, have been removed, so to speak. There could be demons in their life. A lot of times we call things demons, and, and yeah, they're totally associated to demons, and we call them, you know, we all have, you ever heard that expression? We all have our demons Usually that means bad habits. But there's a lot of truth to that. We do all have our demons, so to speak. And there's a lot of people who've had demons in their lives and had them removed, not through crazy exorcisms. Some like what you'd find on a show. If you were to think of, okay, what does an exorcism look like? It's scary. That's what we would think. 
somebody convulsing on the floor, eyes rolling back, speaking like crazy monster. And then, you know, this big struggle and war, and next thing you know, the, the demon leaves and the person's in their right mind. And we have, that in, we have that in the Gospels. But we also have a mute guy who can't speak and a demon cast out. And Jesus, it's never a big show of Jesus ever. It's just a conversation. He just speaks a word, and these people are free. You know, it might be, it very well could be, that we have friends, we have family, we have acquaintances who've made some incredible reformations in their life because of their connection and relationship to Christians, to Christ, to his church, and to his body. And you see these wonderful changes, but there's all, that, all that seems to happen is that just the demons get removed. And that's it. Because by the grace of God and the power of God and the presence of God and his people, good things like this happen. You can, people get an environment around Christians and they're prayed for and the environment of the Christians themselves, their fellowship has an influence on them, dramatic influence on them. They sit, they come, start coming to worship. They sit under the preaching of the word. There's a lot of graces and good things that are happening to them. But no transformation, no change of heart, just reformation, reformation of life. I've seen this happen even in my own brother's life. Throughout the years, especially go back about 25 years ago, he would often come out and stay with my folks and I. We, we would be in Elkford. He would be up north, and he would come stay with us for a while. And when he was there, he would, when he first showed up, he was, you know, he was a drinking heavy, smoking heavy, partying heavy. He would, every time he showed up, he kind of stumbled into town. And there he was, we brought him in, and what we saw was a reformation every time. He was becoming free of his demons, so to speak. Lot moved, his, removed those friends, and now he's, he's, he's saturated by our friends who are Christians. He's being prayed for. He's away from that environment. He's coming, he starts coming to church. He's, he's hearing the word. And all of a sudden, you start to see him make these changes, He's drinking a whole lot less. Now he's drinking almost like barely ever. He stops smoking. He, the foul mouth seemed to disappear somewhere. And he starts making different choices. And if you start looking at his life, what you see is a moral reformation. But no soul transformation. And this would happen time and time again. It seemed like so many demons were removed. However, what we discovered that the, was his house was simply swept clean. And the house remained empty. In our text, Jesus said that after the demon was removed and it wandered about in waterless places, whatever that means, waterless places, I guess on land, I don't know. It would return, it says, it would return and find the house swept clean and in order. Swept clean and in order. However, there was nobody occupying the space. It's just swept clean and in order. No new owner, no new occupant. And of course, he's using a metaphor as a house, 
of the house, sorry, to represent a person's life. He's referring to this, the person's soul, their inner life. And so clearly, the, the life was cleaned up. It's tidy, he says. It's swept clean. It's in order. So reformation had taken place. Definite changes. This really is the best way to explain some, some of the reforms people make when they move into the presence of Christians. Like my brother. They're being prayed for. They're sitting under the word. And all of a sudden you see reformation and changes taking place. The house gets swept clean. But in some cases it remains empty. You've got to wonder if the mute person whom Jesus had just healed just prior to this, if you look back in in the verses before verse 24, Jesus states this after he had done this to the mute person. And perhaps this is the case of the mute person. The mute person was was healed, the demons were removed, but now he can tell that this this mute person probably didn't submit himself to Christ, believe that Jesus was Messiah, and turn turn over to his lordship, but rather remained uncertain, undecided. Because it's interesting that Jesus says this right after what he did for this guy whom the demon was cast out. To say this right after makes me want to think that Jesus knows something we don't, right? He often does. And he's saying it as a warning. You better have a new owner-occupant or you're in trouble. Don't just sweep the house clean. Matthew Poole, in his commentary on this passage, said this about what was the state, what that state might be like. What's it like to have all this personal reformation, for the house to be swept clean, to be, to be empty? He says this, that the devil may be in some sort and degree be cast out of persons and places, while yet in other respects, they may be, in, they may be his house, and he may dwell in and amongst them. Their bodies, their country, may be in a great measure delivered from his power. And he may yet keep possession of their souls. This ordinarily happens in places where the gospel is faithfully preached, though there remains an abundance of of men whose lives evidence that the devil has too great a possession of their souls. Yet the places and people inhabiting them are more freed from witchcraft and the power which the devil exercises over men and women's bodies and cattle, etc. than other more paganish and ignorant places. In other words, you see where the gospel's preached and it has moved forward, you see a lot, a lot, lot less manifestations of demonic activity, is what he's saying. He, he may also, in a sense, be saying that to be cast out in quotes, is to mean that they are reclaimed from vicious and debauched lives, yet are not brought home to God. They are only more enlightened and more under the power of restraining grace, yet their souls may be the devil's house. Again, the idea here, house swept clean, but no ownership transfer, no new occupant taking the place. This is, this is what we saw, again, in my brother's life. House swept clean. No new occupant. 
everything in order. It starts to become in order, and it starts to almost think that something really amazing has happened. But when, in fact, there was no title change. If you said, were to look, who has the title to this house, it would still read, the devil. Jesus didn't occupy. Cleaned and tidied. So what would happen? What happens when a person gets in the situation? Their lives are reformed. Their lives are changed. There's all kinds of tidying up that takes place. There's all kinds of cleanliness. But there's no title change to the house. Jesus says this is a bad state. Because actually your, your end will be far worse than your beginning. And why is that? He says, well, this is, what's, this is what will happen. If a person does this and all they have in their life is just per, a bunch of reformation, but no transformation, this is what happens. Look at verse 25. When the demon comes back, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So here is what happens. Here's the warning. He's Jesus saying, there better be a title change. Or what's going to happen is seven more worse than the first will return. And the end will be worse than the beginning. So if the original demon was bad... And then he goes and gets seven more. Seven more, more evil than himself. And he returns. The warning is real. You'd better not just clean and tidy the place. But you better change the title. You better have new ownership. It's kind of like what happens in a situation where you have bank foreclosure. There's no owner-occupant. He gets a notice from the bank that he's being foreclosed on. So he leaves, and now he's ticked at the bank. He's ticked that he's been kicked out. He's frustrated. So he goes and gets seven of the biggest, baddest, meanest dudes he knows that just like to wreck things. And he comes back to the place and destroys it. Actually, I've walked, I've seen these kinds of foreclosures. For some people who are being foreclosed on get a little nasty. And it's like they came back with seven big dudes and destroyed the place just to get back for being evacuated or evicted. Now, <clears throat> let's just imagine for a moment this analogy. They go get their buddies. These are big, strong dudes. They end up coming back. And they come back and they find in this house the meanest, the baddest, the strongest they could ever imagine. They look upon them, and they're terrified. Because even if there were seven or 70,000, they realize the odds aren't good. He says, in that case, he comes back, and he sees one so strong, he sees one so mighty, that he says, no, okay, I got the seven buddies. We better split. This house is well guarded. (laughs) There's no chance. It's not going to happen. Because, you know, Jesus, this is exactly the case, isn't it? This is exactly the situation. Whether it be seven, whether it be 70, or whether it be 7,000, it doesn't matter. They flee at his word. What do we have read for us this morning in Luke chapter 8? Remember the story of the demoniac? 
Jesus runs into him. This guy is crazy. He, they've chained this guy down. He busts the chains. They've tried to like restrain him, and they can't. And Jesus walks up and talks to him. and asks, He asks the demon, actually, who are you? And he says, we're legion, because there's many. So there were, this guy was demon, imagine possessed, enough possessed by so many demons that they go into a herd of pigs. They're all in this one man. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, be gone. And guess what? They're gone, but, but they have a plea. Hey, hey, wait a second. Please, don't send us away in the far country of the abyss. But please, would you send us into the pigs? Okay? Into the pigs you go. Kind of a strange thing. Strange request. <laughs> but this is, this is the power of Jesus. They're begging. There's, there's legions of them. They, they dominate this man. They're powerful. They're strong. They can take and whoop a person. And they make a request, of, a request of Jesus that he would be merciful. Please. Man, I, could you just imagine what they're seeing and how they're understanding and perceiving? We're blinded to it all. All we get are the events of the, the story. We're kind of like, oh, what is weird, man? What's going on? What are they seeing? Like, what, what, what is the deal? Like, the disciples, they see Jesus, and he's cloaked. He's cloaked in humanity. And there's nothing about him. He's not a strapping lad. I'm sure he's just probably an average guy. Yeah, look at him. And think, you know, usually we get intimidated when we see impressive power. Like, that, that dude's huge. You know, it's like, that guy's a monster. And the bigger and the meaner and the badder, the more, more intimidating he is to us. So our eyes of flesh, we just see the bigness. But, so the disciples are looking at Jesus. They don't see anything spectacular. I w- it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if actually he was a 95-pound weakling. Because you go read Isaiah 53, and he says, there's nothing about him that we should esteem him. In fact, it seems to say that he was, he was kind of ugly, too. There was nothing about his beauty. He's kind of like, there's nothing great there. And it wouldn't surprise me because he's cloaked. But the demons know, and they see, and they understand, and they're fearful of him. And they do whatever he says. Then you have to realize the only one, the only one who can deliver us from one, two, seven, seventy, or seven thousand demons is Jesus. The only one. For thousands of years, humanity was locked under this tyranny, oppressed, held under bondage to sin, to death, to devil, with nothing we could do about it. Nobody. Apart from Him, we cannot stand. I don't care who you are here this morning. Let me tell you something. You are weak compared to a demon. Weak. You're frail. And if you haven't encountered your own weakness, your own frailty, you haven't lived long enough. Because we are. And apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you have no defense. You'd be whooped so fast it isn't even funny. Your only defense is Jesus. You remember the guys, the sons of Sceva and Acts? They thought they were pretty macho. They thought they would take on some demons. They saw, hey, they saw Jesus and the apostles doing it. Why not us? So they go in and they try to cast, they're going to think, I'm going to try this too. Try to cast out these demons. What happened? They got whooped. Bad. So bad, they found themselves beaten and naked outside on the street. 
That's a bad beatdown. And the demon said, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? Don't mess with them outside of Jesus. In Jesus, hands off. It doesn't matter. Ten thousands, thousands upon thousands, they could not stand against you. They could not. This whole idea of fearing and being fearful of demons is absolutely, utterly ridiculous if you're in Jesus. There's zero to fear. They like to get you to fear them. That's the whole idea. They love you to get you to fear. Because if you fear them, they can oppress you. They can mess with you. But if you being in Christ and knowing your position in Christ, look how Paul wants you to understand. Even look at the book of Ephesians. He wants you to understand your position in Christ. Because in Christ... You are in the one who is above all things, together with him, above every principality and power and dominion and rule and everything that is named. This is why at the name of Jesus, they have to flee. They have to run. They get it way better than we do. They understand Jesus' authority. They understand his power. You know, I really think that this, one of the, the biggest reasons for the success of AA and Celebrate Recovery in that is, is, on the, is, is when it's done right and it's faithfully Christian. If you look at the first two statements, here's the two acknowledgments. One, here's the first one, that I am powerless. I can't do this. I, I, am, I am without the strength. And, apart, you know, apart from help, I can't. There's no way. It's really a fundamental acknowledgement and a confession of your utter and complete weakness and inability to do and change anything. Second, you know the second tenet they, they, they try to get you to understand? I hate the whole use of higher power, but the ones that are explicitly Christian, understanding that with God, the only way, the only possible way of change is by God being your strength and your help. I'm convinced that this is why it's so successful. Because at least they, one of the, the primary tenet is to confess your own weakness, your own inability, your own inability to stand and make reformations. And secondly, my only help is in God. My only hope is in God. My only strength is in God. The only way I can do it is by looking to Him. And if you get that straight and you start working your way through the rest, you can see why it's effective. So many people try personal reformation. So many people try to stand up against they're demons. So many people try to stand up the ones that oppress them. And they do it, and what they do is they try to stand and, oh yeah, by the way, Lord, would you help me? It's just arrogance. It's pride. It's foolish not understanding. No, I can't. We say, no, Lord, I can't. But I know you can. If you stand in front of me, if you go before me, 10,000 could come against me, and nothing would stick. But if he doesn't, I'm dead. You know, in saying that, it can give the impression that somehow, if all we would do is just turn to Jesus, that everything would be fine. That there's no, there's no longer any battle or any struggle. And that's not the impression I want to give you at all. That somehow, if, as long as you have Jesus as the owner-occupant of the house, and that he's reigning and ruling in your life, that, hey, it's, it's a piece of cake. I don't want to give that impression because that's not what I, I, I'm saying at all. 
Our struggle, even as Christians, is fierce. And as Christians, we've got to continually learn on a daily basis, on a daily basis, to make the Lord our strength, make the Lord our help, make the Lord our defense. Because like manna, in the morning, it's gone. And we need new stuff. We need the Lord to be before us and with us and strengthen us and help us on a daily basis. Just listen to Martin Luther, who wrote about this as a Christian, the struggle. He says, when I awake at night, the devil tarries not to seek me out. He disputes with me and makes me give birth to all kinds of strange thoughts. I think that often the devil, solely to torment and vex me, wakes me up while I'm actually sleeping peacefully. My nighttime combats are much harder for me than in the day. The devil understands how to produce arguments that exasperate me. Sometimes he has produced such as to make me doubt whether or not there is a God. End quote. Can you relate to that? If you're a Christian, do you know what it's like to be in battle? Do you know what it's like to be engaged? It's fierce. And you know, apart from the Lord, you'd be utterly and completely destroyed. Peter thought he was something, didn't he? Oh, Jesus, I would stand for you. No way would I ever back down. Oh, yeah, Peter? Before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Not me. Oh, yeah, you. And no one, one more thing. After it all happened, he says to him, Hey, you know what? The devil asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. Peter only makes it out by the skin of his teeth because Jesus defended him. And no one here will ever stand apart from Jesus defending you. He has to not only just be the owner-occupant of your life, but he has to continually go before you. He has to be the one in front. He has to be the one you look to, depend on, trust in. And he has to be your hope, your help, your salvation on a daily basis. For you to walk into the day and for you not to first make sure that Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, go before me. Be my strength, be my shield, be my defense. Otherwise I can't stand. Oh, deliver me from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation. Oh please, that has got to be a daily cry of all of us. Understand something. You're in a fierce battle and you will get your lunch handed to you if Jesus is not continually ever set before you as your strong tower and shield and defense. There's something else I want to say here this morning about this. Because if you're sitting here this morning, you could be a person that deceives yourself. And why? You deceive yourself because you sit here week after week, you have Christian friends and family, people are prayed for, you're in an environment, and what you have going on in your life is personal reformation. But perhaps there's no transformation. Perhaps the title of the house has not been changed, and perhaps Jesus is not truly Lord. This is a real warning, and it's a warning to anybody who might deceive themselves or delude themselves into thinking that just because you're in a certain environment, doing a certain thing, have a reformed kind of life, but there's really no transformation in the soul. You have to realize that the day will come. The day will come when that will be exposed and that will be found out. The day will come when seven more worse themselves return and you find yourself in trouble. Do you realize that when Jesus resides 
in the house, when Jesus is Lord of the house, there are some fundamental differences. And here I want you to examine yourself. Examine yourself this morning because on the one hand it should give comfort and it should give strength to those who know that Jesus resides and has title. And it should come, provide lots of discomfort to those who may be fooling themselves. And you know here I want, I want children to listen up too because children can be deceived Children can be deceived because they, they grow up in a Christian home and they're in this certain environment. And what they hear and they know is they, they hear all the stuff. They're, they're saturated with this environment and there's, transform, or sorry, there's reformation that goes on in their lives. But there may not be transformation. Jesus may not be Lord. They might, you not be, your life may not be subjected to him as Lord. But this is what you do because this is what you do. Here's how you can know who has title or not. And all this is just drawn out of 1 John because 1 John's asking the question. First of all, if you know that you are not without sin, you know you're not without sin, but you also know that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin and unrighteousness. And because of that, you are made righteous before God then Jesus owns you. If you have a love for Jesus and delight to do his will, then Jesus owns you. If you delight to live under his lordship, then Jesus owns you. If when you sin, you find no comfort at all, And you actually, even if you're in sin for a while, it's like, why is this so awful? Why do I can't stand this? Why do I hate this? Why, why, why is this bothering me so much? And you can't find any relief until you confess your sin, repent of your sin, and turn to Him. It's because Jesus owns you. If the world and everything in it is no longer your soul's home, and you just almost can't even figure it out why this is just not, I never find myself at home in the world, in the things of the world. You're most at home with God and with his people. And for, you just know that these are my people. This is home. And Jesus owns you. I'm telling you what this morning, if you hear and you, you can sin, it doesn't really bother you. If you don't really delight in Jesus or to do his will, if you have no interest, it's like, you know, confessing sin is like, well, whatever, I I almost never do it because I never think of it. If you go about your life and you find that Jesus is not Lord of the life, you're not interested in submitting to him as Lord in your life. You're not desiring to do his will, then I say, hello, listen, this warning is for you. Your life may have been swept clean by personal reformations, but there's no transformation that Jesus brings. In that case, there's only one solution. Turn to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Give him title and ownership. Say, here I am. And I'll tell you what. In that Situation when that happens, there's transformation and there's a title shift. But don't think for a moment that all oh, it's easy peasy now. 
No, get your hard hat on and get ready. Because even with Jesus as the title owner, resident of your house, you need to daily, on a daily basis, make sure that he is the one going before you. He is the one who's shielding you. He is the one who's strengthening you. You don't do anything but looking to him to provide everything that you need. If there's any way to win the battle and overcome the battle, it's by becoming this this incredibly dependent creature upon Jesus for your daily bread, your daily strength, your daily help, your daily nourishment. You need him. Otherwise, you're in trouble. So may God grant us mercy and grace this morning. And rejoice and be glad if Jesus is the title owner. But be fearful if he's not. Because seven worse might be knocking on your door. Amen. Father, we thank you so much that you are merciful, gracious, and kind. And you're so even merciful that you have exposed in us and shown us and revealed in us by your word where we stand before you. I thank you that Jesus is the strong man who can come and he's bound the devil, conquered sin, overcame death and brought life to us all and liberty. In him is life, in him is liberty, in him is peace, in him is joy. And we thank you for Jesus, who's our Lord, who's our Savior, who's our captain, who's our shield and our strong defense. We praise you, O Lord, for you're so good to us. And I also pray, ask, Lord, that right here, right now, this morning, you would work deeply in the hearts of those who don't know you, who do not have you as title owner and occupant. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in their hearts mightily right now and grant them this grace. For we pray this in Christ. Amen.